0: Welcome to Common Thread. We hope you find these lessons helpful, but also we'd like to get to know you. If you go to our website slash newcomer, we'll send you an email, some things to read about the community and an invitation to a personal chat. If you're here in Raleigh, maybe face-to-face, if not on Zoom, we hope you will. CommonThreadChurch.org slash newcomer. Okay, here's the lesson. I was staying at our church's consultant at his New at his home, which is also the home of my very dear friends Jack and Isabel Fallow. So I pretty much finished the outline of an online course for the next generation of leaders in our own community and maybe for other communities who would want to do what we've done together. So it was a good week, plus I really love being with Jack and Isabel, plus if you know Isabel, you know we had some really good food. She's a great cook. So I heard wonderful things about Sue's. I just saw Sue about Sue's lesson uh, last week while I was gone. But because of the tech troubles, I guess we're having problems seeing it. But uh, I just found out this morning I can listen to it on the podcast, so I'll have a listen later. So we've been exploring this question: Are we Christian? Because if you only see the surface of what we do at Common Thread. And if you defined the word Christian in terms that were familiar in the late 20th, early 21st century, uh, you could easily conclude, no, uh, this is not a Christian place. We are not Christian people. So I wrote that whole book, and then the subtitle of it was that question, Can We Still Be Christian?, living in the quantum era as we do. Went through a whole bunch of our history, a whole bunch of our heritage, looked at a whole big picture, and then in the end, very last chapter concluded, yes, yes, we can be Christian, but we can't be Enlightenment Christians, or we can't be Christian the way that we've been Christian for the last 450 years. So as we look at history, we begin to understand that that word has a much broader context than many of us grew up having been told. So, unsurprisingly then, this lesson has been an exploration of some of our tradition's history. Uh, When and why some of the core elements of our framing narrative begin and how they have morphed and changed over time and how we can find life in them again, digging under all those layers to find the good and the noble and the helpful core at the center, at the beginning, and then understanding that core deeply, and then reimagining how we could apply that ancient wisdom to the world that we live in now, which is a very different world, even than 50 years ago. Well, if we do that, it turns out there is gold in our tradition. Because we've been saying all along, a tradition is a tradition because it lasts. And it lasts because there's something in it that touches us deeply generation after generation after generation. There's something meaningful in it, something that we need. So we started talking about Christian institution. And yeah, that has not been going well for us for quite some time now. But we saw that there is a kernel of goodness in it, the benefit of people organizing for mutual support, organizing for mutual strength, helping one another do what we be, what would be very difficult for us to do alone, be able to do together. Then we talked in the next section about believing in God. Also, not going very well for us these days. One of the questions you submitted... Why is God such an asshole? Because when we look at some of the core framing narrative that we carry with us, you can't but come to that conclusion. And we saw in that part of the lesson that when our tradition is at its best, we have always insisted that the concept of God is a moving target, like this at one time in one setting and like that at another time in another setting. And when we don't move with the moving target, we become rigid and when that happens we suffer the consequences of our non-nimbleness and we miss out on some of the richness that is embedded in the concept of the spirituality of our journey. Well if you missed any of those parts of the lesson you can have a listen online today we're going to talk about Jesus because if you're a Christian Jesus pretty much part of the deal. So what do we think about that? What do we think about Jesus. This week when I was talking to Jack, he told me about a friend of his that he was, uh, th- this friend was kind of unraveling his faith, kind of losing his religion along the way. And so Jack told him about us, told him about Common Thread. And so his friend checked out our website and he came back to Jack and he said, you know what? I've looked at their website. They do not talk very much about Jesus, so they cannot possibly be Christians. So today we're going to talk about Jesus. <laughs> Now, one of the questions that you submitted at the beginning of this lesson was, did Jesus come to save us from our sins? That's very familiar language if you grew up in church. And as we did with the question that started the, the section on do we believe in God, it's the question under the question that we're going to talk about today. Because that question, did Jesus come to, it's chock full of unspoken assumptions. Assumptions about purpose and assumptions about agency. Basically, behind that question is this. Did God, far away in heaven, again, assumption, again, unspoken, again, a story that we tell. Did God, far away in heaven, send Jesus on a mission from heaven to earth And did Jesus come on that mission, a God-man, to live a perfect life, to never sin, and then to die in place of us, the sinful ones? Did Jesus come to save us from our sins? Well, it's a very good question. And to explore it, we got some help from another question that was also submitted when I put those out. This one submitted by a little bit of a smartass. Uh, I have an idea who it is, but Menti is anonymous, so I don't know for sure. But that question was, now that Marvel has Egyptian gods and Norse gods, should we be offended that Jesus has not gotten superhero status? And a follow-up question, should I organize a protest? (laughs) (laughs) Now, of course, I laughed, but it turns out that when we think historically about Jesus, the question of superpower status is going to become kind of relevant. Because from the earliest days, people have puzzled over how we think about Jesus. Is Jesus a human being like you and me? Or is Jesus a superpower being like Thor? Which is another case, you've heard me say it before, that can seem like silly theological hair-splitting and who cares, it's about an irrelevant topic nobody cares about except How powerfully the stories that we tell ourselves are framing narratives, how powerfully they impact our daily lives. And in this instance, if we tell the story of Jesus one way, it might lead us to dismiss something that we would think of as silly that could actually be powerful and transformative in our lives. So today, what about Jesus? So these are the questions that we're going to be talking about afterwards, so I'll give you some time to be thinking about them. First, we'll we'll get together in our groups and talk about how you thought about Jesus growing up. What was your starting point? What were your initial impressions? But next, we'll hear some history today, a very old meaning-making narrative that kind of goes back to the very beginning. So during, what are you thinking? I hope we can ask each other, so what? What is the relevance of that? What is the significance of that? If if the story I'm going to tell today did become my meaning-making narrative, How would it shape my instincts, my behavior, my life? How might I live differently on some random Thursday because that becomes part of my meaning-making narrative? All right, so be thinking about that uh, as the lesson goes on. Let's go back again to another one of those early church councils. This one was in Chalcedon. It's called the Council of Chalcedon, creatively. That's somewhere in present-day Turkey now. And once again, the bishops gathered back then to try and figure out what being Christian means. And this time they were trying to figure out, and here's a term you do not need to know. They were trying to figure out hypostatic union. (laughs) Really, you do not need to know that part. But here's, behind that theology nerd jargon, there was a pressing question. And it was this, it was a well-established pattern in the ancient world to assign deity status, superhero status, to important historical figures. So Egyptian pharaohs assigned deity status. Roman emperors assigned deity status. Gilgamesh, Homer, Remus and Romulus, the apocryphal founders of Rome, Even Pythagoras, the theorem guy, all these important people, all these influential people, all were afforded deity status. All were afforded superhero status. Now, here we are 400 years after Jesus, having seen the explosive movement that came after Jesus, and now the bishops are puzzling over, how shall we think about Jesus. Shall we assign to him the status that we've assigned to all these other people through history? Is Jesus human, like you and I are human? Or is Jesus a demigod, like Hercules, or a full-on deity, like Caesar Augustus? Uh, that was their question. Clearly, Jesus was important. But what kind of important? Human important? Important? Superhero important? Deity important? So, at the end of the council, when they wrote up the declaration at the end, here's what they said. Is Jesus deity? Well, yes, and, well, no. (laughs) Fuzzy, but you might, after the first part of the lesson, have anticipated that it'd be fuzzy. In fact, fuzzy might become a telltale sign that we're on to something. Carefully considering the words that had been attributed to Jesus, which themselves are pretty fuzzy, I and the Father are one, Jesus said. That's in John 10. Oh, deity. Okay. Uh, But since you are two, John 17, I'm going to pray that you move into your status as one with the divine the way that I am one with the God. Okay. Okay. Human. Back and forth they went. Now, th- in all the councils, we had to throw in a little bit of regional politics, people rooting for the home team and getting their favorite perspective uh, on the docket. But in the end, their declaration didn't turn out the way that we might have anticipated that it would. They decided kind of yes and kind of no, but with a twist. And that declaration, as fuzzy as it was, it took. It took. And it became enshrined in our tradition and subsequently affirmed again and again through the years, generation after generation. Every young seminarian has learned this declaration through the centuries. Odds are if you grew up in church, you know about it. And it lasted as long as it lasted because every so often someone would rediscover how profound and powerful and meaningful this very fuzzy declaration was. So if you grew up in church, you might have heard it. Here it is. Jesus is fully human. Jesus is fully divine. That's the hypostatic union part that you don't need to know about. Jesus is not, the declaration of Chalcedon said, in a separate category from you or me. Jesus is not in a separate category from other human beings. Jesus is fully human. With all the burps and all the blood, with all the sadness, with all the joy, human, like you and I, are human. Also, Jesus is fully divine. We'll come back to that in a moment. Now, here's the thing that is not immediately obvious today, in given the world that we live in. That was a radical departure from what would have been expected. Because by 451, Christianity had become the dominant religion of Rome and Rome had become the dominant empire of the world and Jesus was the seminal figure of the most powerful religion, of the most powerful empire in the world. You don't get more important than that. So what would have been expected? Deity. But they did not. They did not afford Jesus' deity status. They did not put him into the same category as Jupiter, the Roman word for Zeus. They did not put him into the, cap, uh, the same category as Hercules, the son of Jupiter with a human being. Uh, they did not put him even into the same category as Caesar Augustus, who was known as the son of God. They did not afford Jesus' superhero deity status. They insisted that Jesus is human like every other human. Now, Christian people still to this day think of Jesus as a deity. Jesus equals God. That was a formulation I grew up on in church. If you grew up in church, you might have grown up in that same formulation. I only know differently because I've studied history. And how many people do that? How many people go back and look at these ancient councils? So when folks hear that our own heritage tells us that Jesus is not a deity, that can feel very, very difficult. Our brains just rebel. Uh, Now, I promise you, there are lots of churches that are meeting this morning that if they were to hear what I just said, would rebel at the notion that I just outlined. Even though it's a bedrock part of our foundation, even though it's a bedrock part of our history, Jesus is fully divine does not mean Jesus equals a deity. So again, if you're born into that tradition, if you grew up with that, if you were weaned on that, if you thought that was the make or break thing you had to believe in order to belong to the group, this is hard. It feels blasphemous. But it never was. It never was blasphemous. Deity was never part of our heritage, but Western culture, but human history, but human nature. Deity just kind of gets into our guts when we think about these kinds of things. So even if we know the declaration and we can say it on cue, deity as a concept seeps into our unspoken assumptions about Jesus. Jesus is fully human. Now, the second part of the declaration, Jesus is fully divine. What does that fully divine part mean? What are they talking about? Well, it's an interesting choice of words, divine, most notably interesting because it is not the word deity. Deity is a noun, and they did not choose a noun. They did not say Jesus was any person, place, or thing other than a human person like you or a human person like I am a human person. Instead they chose the word divine and which is an adjective. It's a description of. In the dictionary divine means to have a character like God or to live life in a godlike manner or to live in a way that reflects God. What they were saying was that Jesus possessed the character of God, lived a godlike life, reflected the nature of God. Now here's the thing that our heritage has always insisted Like you and me, Jesus was made in the image of God. Animated, our first story tells us, by the very breath of God. And that, our meaning-making narrative tells us, is the defining nature of being human. Carriers of the inner light, every one of us. Carriers of divine breath, every one of us. Have you heard that before? When Jesus expressed divine character, it was as a human being. Jesus showed us the possibility of divine life housed in a human being. Now, again, if you grew up with the formula, Jesus equals God, that's hard doesn't matter that it's about as bedrock as our tradition gets. It doesn't matter that it's right there at the core of who we are. It is just hard, like flip out kind of hard. But it is our heritage. Now, we sure have deviated from our heritage over the years. Our tradition is founded on it. It's enshrined in our scriptures. Fully human is to carry the divine. But that is still very, very hard. But for those parts of the Christian church outside of Roman influence, the Eastern Orthodox Church, for example, or the Quakers, for example, or the monastic communities that have their heritage in the rule of Benedict all the way back to the desert fathers and mothers, or the Celts who were up above in the north beyond Roman uh, influence. They held on to that core notion. Jesus was not in a distinct category fundamentally unlike you and me. Quite the contrary. What made Jesus special was that he showed us what it looks like to be fully human. Because to be fully human is to carry the image and breath and spirit and inner light of God. There is in each of us the same quality, the same capacity that was in Jesus. So when Paul says that Jesus was the firstborn, you and I are the second and the third and the billionth born. You and I have the same spirit in us that was in Jesus. So that makes the key word in that declaration all the way back to Chalcedon not divine. The key word is fully, fully divine. Also part of our heritage, also part of our tradition, also part of our meaning-making narrative is that Jesus is unique even that Jesus is different from you and me in some way. But here's the thing. He is not different from you and me because his nature was essentially different from ours. The profound difference is a difference of degree. It's a quantitative difference. It's not a qualitative difference. Jesus expressed the divine at the highest level. But we can all express the divine at some level, and hopefully at a higher level tomorrow than we can today. So a few decades ago, the little rubber bracelets were a bit of a fad, and one of them came out that said, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Which, if Jesus is a superhero, is a pretty depressing story. Because if Jesus is a superhero, well, then here's what Jesus would do. He would live perfectly, thank you very much. He would be infinitely wise and he would be infinitely virtuous. He would never sin because he's God. That's what gods do. But what does that have to do with me? Sure, it would be nice to be God, but it would also be nice to have x-ray vision. But those old bishops at Chalcedon, they left us a legacy. And they told us, it's not like that. It's not that way. Every one of us carries within us the very nature of God. Every one of us carries within us light, not darkness, goodness, not badness, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. That image, that spirit, it is in us just like it was in Jesus. Now, of course, we got other stuff in there too. We've got some ugly stuff in there. We've got some mean spirited stuff. We've got some stupid stuff in there. We got a bunch of other stuff also. But at the core, you and I carry the same spirit in us that Jesus carried Now, that makes what would Jesus do a doable proposition. Here's what Jesus would do. Jesus lived in this world and connected to the divine. And it turns out that you and I also live in this world. And you and I can also connect to the divine. Jesus lived in this world and Jesus drew from the interior light. And you and I live in this world. And we can also draw from the interior light. Jesus lived in this world and cared about this world, brought divine light to this world. And you and I, should we decide to follow Jesus, will not be despair because everything's going to hell in a handbasket. It is bad, but it's not as bad as Roman occupation. To follow Jesus is to bring divine light to this world that we live in. That's our religion. On earth as it is in heaven, you might have heard. Carry light to darkness draw from the love that is within us, carry that love to hatred, carry that love to those around us, bring joy to sorrow, bring peace to anxiety. To be Christian, to follow Jesus is to resist injustice with love. It is to fight for fairness for all. It is to, and it is to do so with the peace in our hearts that Jesus said would pass even our own understanding. To contend for dignity and to do all we can to ensure that everybody gets access to resource. Follow Jesus, and we work toward a world in which justice does flow like waters and righteousness, like a mighty stream. Follow Jesus and we care about people's bodies and we care about their schools and we care about their planet. And we care about the inequities of health care and education and opportunity. Follow Jesus and we care that some people have access to nutritional food and others do not. Follow Jesus and we work to make right what is wrong on the earth to make fair what is unjust. Follow Jesus, and then we do the things that help us do that by tapping into the interior light that we carry within. We do the things that help us connect to and draw from that divine breath that is within us. The same divine breath, the same divine spirit that was in Jesus is in us. So we work the circle. So we show up to the groups that do the working of the circle so that we can access the interior light, draw from the breath that is within us, the same breath from which Jesus drew. And in fact, doing that, seeing Jesus access that interior light, and then seeking that same interior light in ourselves, that's what the earliest uh, leaders in our tradition called salvation. Now, if you're curious about the history of that and the theology of that, you can Google the term moral influence atonement, or you can just get the book and then you can read all through it and you can follow the footnotes all the way back in history all day long. You can learn about Clement of Rome. You can learn about Ignatius of Antioch. You can learn about Irenaeus, You can learn about Origen. Or you could just Google it. (laughs) But here's the thing. Especially when we are as discouraged as we have to be by the events of our days. Especially when dead school children will not soften partisan loyalty. Especially when moms and dads and kids and grandparents die simply because they live on the way that some nation wants to get to take so that they can have a warm water port. It is easy to not feel up to accessing the same spirit in us that was in Jesus. It's easy to feel daunted. It's easy to get focused on our own weaknesses and our frailties and our own perceived inadequacies. Hear that term on earth as it is in heaven, look at the news and you think, oh God, that cannot be, and it certainly can't be me. But two things. It turns out, following Jesus, doing the things that help us access the same interior light that Jesus had, and then doing something, some here, now, small, doable thing, that's actually the way that we get out of our despair. That's actually the way that we get out of our discouragement. And a second thing is we have each other. We have a community around us to encourage us and to remind us and to show us and to share with us. This is how, this is how we follow Jesus. This is how, this is how we awaken to the same interior light that is in us that was in him. This is how, this is how we do what he did. This is how we do here now small doable. This is how we make our homes and our neighborhoods and our jobs, and our schools, and our city just a little bit more like heaven on earth than they were yesterday. This is how. So this week, the community comes and invites you to One Wake, having an internal assembly to talk about how we can change education and housing in Wake County. Then on the 12th, Braver Angels is going to invite you to come and talk about how we take care of our nation's biggest problem, that we can't talk to each other, we can't work together because we are so polarized and divided from each other. Every week you're being invited. We've got children who are just sponges, ready to soak up wisdom and guidance. As our community, uh, as we are gathered together, we create the possibility for one another, saying, this is how we find our way from darkness into light. We have each other. We have each other to help us walk the same journey and awaken to the same interior light and bring the same kind of changes in the world around us that Jesus did. We have each other. And so in Dwelling Divine, may we. May we awaken to that same spirit And as Jesus taught us, may we be yeast cells leavening the world that we create each day. Light shone into dark places and seeds that grow into a better world. Amen. Well, if you would prepare your offerings and uh, we all give online now, so you can do that right on your phone. The donate button is at the top of our website. Lots of options, lots of ways you can give. And if you're here in Raleigh or if you're far away, we invite you to take an ownership stake in the community. And remembering, as we say all the time, there is good return when we invest into community. When we give into the community our time and our energy and our love, when we give our dollars, here's what the community does with those resources. Takes them, amplifies them, and gives them back to us in the form of an environment in which we thrive, in which we flourish, in which we grow. So we all donate online now. It's at the top of our website. Um, now in a minute, we're going to dismiss you on the live stream. We're going to do what are you thinking here in the room? And what we hope is that you will join us on Zoom and do the same thing. This is a great way for you to connect with people who are on the spiritual journey. And the Zoom link is on our website. If you just go down under events and news, you'll see it. And if you've stayed with us this long, we're going to trust you with the password. Here it is. Get ready. It is 1417-1417. The password is 1417. Now, do not be a troll, or we will delete you out of the group. (laughs) But that's how you get into the Zoom. We hope you'll join us. All right, we're going to dismiss those folks, so let us together put our hands on our hearts and let's remember as we go that we are, every one of us, carriers of the indwelling divine. That means that we carry love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness. We carry what the world around us needs. It's in us. And if you would extend your other hand to our city, let's look for opportunities this week to share the stuff that's in us with the people that we live and work and go to school with, looking for opportunities to repair and heal our worlds. Amen. God bless you all. We are dismissed. You are not... We'd love to connect with you in real life. CommonThreadChurch.org slash newcomer. And if you'd like to take an ownership stake in the well-being of the community, we all contribute online. You'll find a donate button at the top of our website. See you next time. We'd love to connect with you in real life. Common newcomer. And if you